We're going to be in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Continuing our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter, book-by-book study through the book of Acts. Paul is heading back to Jerusalem, and before he heads back to Jerusalem, he wants to have one last meeting with the elders of the Ephesian church. Now, this is kind of interesting, because last week, as we talked about, he was trying so desperately to get back to Jerusalem in a timely manner, he didn't want to swing through Ephesus. So he stops at this town called Miletus, and he basically asks for the elders of the Ephesian church to come to him so they could have a meeting. I like this message because this is not your typical Paul message. Most of the messages that we have recorded in the Bible concerning Paul are evangelical, which are obviously very good. But if you will look at this chapter today, and we're going to do verses 17 through 38, Lord willing, time willing, this is almost a staff meeting, if you will. This is Paul gathering together the leadership and saying, okay, this is how the church is supposed to work. This is what you're supposed to be doing as the leaders of the church. And it does not only apply to them, but it also applies to us. As the men and women of God that we're called to be, how are we supposed to be living our lives? So that's what we're going to be doing this morning, verses 17 through uh, 38 here. And let's go ahead and jump right into this, and let's pray. Lord, your word, we pray that you would teach, we would listen, let your spirit guide and direct, and open our hearts to hear what you have to say, Lord, in your name. Amen. Acts 20, verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I had always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. So Paul here, starting off, is basically saying, Guys, you know what I'm like. I like verse 18, that phrase, the manner which I lived among you, manner of life. Now, that's an interesting question to kind of ask is, what is your manner of life? Now, generally speaking, as Christians, if we'd go up to someone and ask them, hey, be honest with me. First thing we're really saying is, don't be honest with me. If you have to tell somebody to be honest with you, what you're really saying is, don't be honest with me. A lot of times when we go up to people and say something about, hey, how am I doing spiritually, or is there anything I need to change? We're afraid to be truthful. We're afraid to be honest. We're afraid to really say, I love you enough to tell you I think what you're doing is wrong. Because we're afraid of losing relationships and friendships, etc. Paul can come out here and say, listen, I don't have to ask you what type of person I am because you know what type of person I am. You know my manner of life. Now think about this. I see you guys on Sundays, maybe Wednesdays. I try to make as many contacts as I can throughout the week. But you really don't know my manner of life. If you really want to know what I'm like as a spiritual man of God, you need to ask my wife. I would ask that you don't ask my wife what type of person I am. If you really want to know what I'm like, you ask my kids. That's how the people that know you and are around you 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, they know what you're like. We can come here and present whatever manner of life we want. It doesn't work that way. Paul is saying, you know what I'm like because I've been with you day in and day out. And what manner of life did he have? Look at the way he describes himself. Verse 19, first phrase, serving. If you're taking notes, mark that, underline or write that down. The first description of his manner of life is he is a servant. Boy, that's easier said than done. Problem with being a servant is that people are always asking something of you. Always. And generally speaking, servants don't get too many thank yous back. They don't get many appreciations. They don't get many pats on the back because they're serving. First way Paul wants to describe himself, his manner of life, is that he's a servant. That's a great way to start. If you want to be a servant, you have to go with the next word there also in verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility. 
Because if you're really going to be a servant of God, you've got to be humble. Because when you're humble, you don't care if people notice what you did. You don't care that people notice that you picked that item up when no one else did. You don't care that people didn't notice that, hey, I held my tongue back when I really could have said something. Because you're humble about it. You don't need the attention. One of the verses that we explain a lot to the boys at home is out of Proverbs. Let another mouth praise you and not your own. Let somebody else see it and they'll notice it and they'll say something. Servant and humility. Now those two are tough enough as it is, but then Paul had to throw this in there in verse 19. The two T's, tears and trials. I hate those words, tears and trials. So now his manner of life is servanthood, his manner of life is humility, and his manner of life are tears and trials. Think of everything Paul went through. Paul went through physical pain, physical beating, emotional, spiritual concerns. His life was full of tears and trials. And to really live the Christian life, when you open yourself up to people, you need to suffer in front of them. So they say, this is how a godly man handles difficult times. Boy, it's really easy to praise God when everything's going good. But it's when the tears and trials of life, verse 19, happen. How do you respond? The manner of life of Paul, servant, humble, tears, trials. To basically sum it up in verse 20, I kept back nothing. He was not hesitant in any way whatsoever. That phrase, kept nothing back, that's a powerful phrase. First question to ask you as we go through this lesson here today. Have you kept anything back from the Lord? Have you really gave him everything? See, a lot of times we keep something back. We don't give him, we don't want to give him everything. We give him a lot. I mean, seriously, what is a servant? A servant is somebody who serves one Sunday a month back in the classrooms. That's a servant, right? A servant is somebody who, when their shift comes up, they show up at church, they serve. That's not a servant. And I appreciate those that do. Servants are a lifestyle, it's a mindset. A servant is every day of the week. You may not be serving a church every day of the week, but you're serving in some capacity. You may be serving your wife or husband at home. You may be serving at work. Yes, you're getting paid, but you're really going there as a service to the Lord to say, how can I be used by the Lord? You're serving at school by being obedient and paying attention. You're serving in whatever way you're calling. It's not just one service, one Wednesday, one Sunday a week. It is a mindset. And you're also doing it humbly in your heart. See, a lot of times we present that humbleness on the outside. Oh, it's no big deal. Just just happy to help. And inside you're thinking, don't ever ask me again. Humbleness. Lord, if this is what you called me to do, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to humbly serve you through tears and trials. Basically, sum it up, verse 20. Lord, I'll keep nothing back. I'll give you everything. I'll give you absolutely everything. Because as I give you everything, I trust you with it. But don't we like to hold back? Why do we hold back? A lot of times it's just not worth it, is it? Right? We just don't feel what's going to come out of it is worth it or what they ask of us is too difficult. So therefore, we just accept it. We accept this kind of middle of the road, mediocre walk with the Lord. We've had a situation recently at the Irvin house where Dawn went to the boys and basically said, Hey, listen, I need you to clean up your, both your rooms and you also need to clean up the basement, uh, the landing area there in the blue room. We call it the blue room or it's kind of a toy room, if you will. So four rooms you need to clean up. And she said, until you get these rooms cleaned up, there's going to be no TV, no games, no nothing. So that's, that's how we're going to do this. Well, now it's gone on, I think, five days. And there's been no TV, no games, no nothing. And the rooms still haven't gotten cleaned. Because the idea of cleaning is worse than not having games, TV, what have you. 
I called the boys together and I said, guys, what are you doing here, man? I said, don't you miss playing stuff? Don't you miss watching your shows on TV? They said, yeah. I said, well, then go clean. And they said, it's just too much to clean. Really what I'm thinking is, I miss the games. I miss the TV. I mean, I can't can't play and watch stuff because they can't. The the other day they came home and I had had a cartoon on. And don't think they're not allowed to watch it. I, I, I chose it. I, I wanted to see it. I can't. So I called him last night up and I said, guys, listen, it was 8.30 at night. And I said, I'm giving you 24 hours. I said, Sunday night by 8.30. I said, you got to have the rooms clean or I'm going to have to do some other type of discipline. Because what's basically happening is what they're missing out on is not enough to spur them on to do what they're supposed to do. Same thing happens spiritually. So you're not doing what the Lord has called you to do. You hold back and your life becomes a little miserable. The joy is gone, the peace is gone, the love is gone, and you're kind of just floating through this life that's just mediocre and unjoyful and unloving. And you know what? That's easier than doing what the Lord called you to do. So we'll spend 30, 40, 50 years in this slop than just saying, I humble myself, I'll be a servant, I'll take the tears, I'll take the trials, and trust you, Lord. I'll go without the TV and the games as long as I don't have to clean the room. No, we're holding back. First question we have to ask ourselves in this message, what are you holding back from the Lord? Paul said, I held nothing back from you. Now, real quick here in verse 20, I want to share with you a quick vision that we have out here. This idea of, if you look in verse 20, proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. You know we've mentioned this here the last few weeks out at church. We really feel led this fall to start up this idea of some home small group studies. This is the vision. This is the verse that kind of gives us this, this idea, this going from house to house. The way the early church worked is they would meet together publicly like we're doing now, but then they would really get together throughout the week. They'd have these things called agape feasts, love feasts, where they get together, have fellowship, and they would have accountability and spiritual growth and encouragement. As the church has grown out here numerically, it gets tougher to do this. You know, we got two services, so we got the 8.30 crowd, then we got the 10 o'clock crowd. And especially at the 10 o'clock service, what I refer to it as, most of what I do at the 10 o'clock service is play duck, duck, goose. I go down each, each aisle and just tap you on the shoulder and say, good to see you, good to see you, good to see you. I'm sincerely happy to see you. It just, there's not that time to really talk and grow. I try to make as many contacts as I can throughout the week, but it gets tougher to do. So we said, let's do this. This is what the early church did. This is what Acts did. So we're going to do this for six weeks. Six weeks. We've had different people that are willing to open up their house, and we're finalizing the details of that, of who can have child care, who can't, etc., things along that type of line. We're really hoping next Sunday to be able to give you that list of the different geographical locations, have you guys then be able to say, this one works, I'd like to go here, and then have that. We're going to do it for six weeks. We're going to be done before Thanksgiving. We're going to stop and evaluate then. We're going to see if the Lord is in it. If the Lord is in it, we're going to come back probably in the spring and say, okay, Lord, what can we do? If the Lord's not in it and it doesn't work, we say, hey, we're willing to give this a try and see what the Lord wants. We'll see what happens. So keep that in mind for next week. Now, here's the thing about small group studies. For some of you, you hear that and you're excited. I had people come up to me after the 830 service and they want to know where and when they're excited. Some of you, if God came down in bodily form and said, I want you to go to the small group, you'd still say, no, Lord, no. That idea of going to a house... And sitting with maybe eight, nine, ten people and becoming close to them? No, I like my distance. I can't make people do small groups and nor am I going to. Nothing ever good comes by pulling teeth. But I do know this. If the Lord has led you, it will definitely bless you. I know for me, small groups are a little uncomfortable. I'm going to be honest with you. I've told Richard before out here, if I have to teach a Bible study to three, four people, it completely freaks me out. Three, four hundred people, got it. 
That's difficult. So for some of you, it may not be something that you feel you want to do. I just ask you to seek the Lord on it and see. Some of you may say, why do we have to do this? You know, isn't everything working? Some people don't like change. I know that. But here's the thing. I've come to the conclusion that there's things that happen out here at church that may bless you. And there's things that happen out at church that may have nothing to do with you. So just because it has nothing to do with you doesn't mean it's not good for the church. Perfect example. This building has been out here since 1998. I have never once used the ladies' bathroom. But I'm assuming it's good for some of you. For me, it serves no purpose. But I'm thankful it's there for you. So small group studies, you may say, that hey, you know what, in this season of life, that's not what I'm called to do. Hey, it may bless somebody else. The vision for this is found right here in Acts 20, verse 20. We have a couple people that have mentioned possibly teaching on marriage. We're finalizing the detail of that. The other idea that we have with it is since it's six weeks, is we thought about doing a study with Ephesians. Now, we do a lot of verse-by-verse studies out here. This will not be a verse-by-verse study. This is not going to be show up at somebody's house and listen to someone just talk for 40, 45 minutes. No. Rich has a term that he's coined out here that I like a lot. That when he does a Bible study, he calls it a prime-the-pump Bible study. Which basically means you have this spiritual point, and you kind of start out, and then you let the Lord just take it. And then you have people just be able to discuss and talk and, and share things, and it's really neat. And the person leading it just kind of helps direct the study there on where it needs to go. We used to have a Bible study in our home, and we'd start out in Genesis and end in Revelation. And it was neat to see where the Lord would take it in that progression there. So the goal is, since Ephesians has six chapters, is what we would do is go through each chapter and find that key passage. And that would be the key point of that study. That's how you would at least start out. We would announce these and list these then so everybody would know. So you could hopefully read a little bit, plan ahead, pray on it. And then when you get together, let the Lord go from there. I tell you, we don't know where the Lord's going to go with this. We may come back here and say, this is the greatest thing that's happened to the church. Amen. We may come back in six weeks and say, I am so glad this is over. I don't know. Let's just throw it out there, see what happens. Acts 20, verse 20 is the vision for it. Pray about it. More information is coming here shortly on that, hopefully next week. So as Paul would get together, manner of life, get together in these people's houses, talk. He's a servant. He's humble. Tears, trials, not holding anything back. What is he actually talking about? Verse 21, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. His message is simple. His message is Jesus, is salvation. We have lost that. And the church in the world today. Because churches get their own little message. The message should always be heaven, hell, Christ saves you. See, a lot of times we want to see things changed. We want things to be different morally in this world. So we preach this message of morality. Unless the heart has been changed in Christ, the morality can never come. The heart has to be changed in Christ first. And then as a changed person in Christ, then the morality comes. It doesn't mean you don't preach morality. You still preach right and wrong. But if you really want to see the world change, it really comes down to this idea of verse 21. It's repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. See them saved in Christ, and then you see it change. Paul's message never changed with that. Verse 22. And see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Paul is saying here that he has a responsibility to do this. He also knows through the Spirit that there's a lot of trials and tribulations coming, and he's probably never going to see them again. This is probably his last meeting with the leadership there at Ephesus. So he wants to make his final points, what the Lord has laid on his heart of what he needs to be doing here. 
Now, a couple things hit me, especially verse 24. Nor do I count my life dear to myself, so I may finish my race with joy. That idea of finishing the race. Can you turn with me real quick, please, to 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy 4. This idea of a race. This is a phrase that's repeated a lot in the Bible. Walking, running, this race that we're supposed to be doing. It carries this idea, as you're going to 2 Timothy chapter 4. It carries this idea of this. Your walk with Christ is that. It's a walk. It's a movement. You're constantly moving, going deeper. There's no standing still in Christ. To stand still in Christ is really to accept lukewarmness and to be mediocre. There's these words that we're walking, we're running, we're moving, we're going deeper in the Lord. I think what happens to us sometimes as believers, we reach this pocket of comfortability in our life, and we just like to stay there. Let's not rock the world too much. I'm I'm content here. I'm content with my service. I'm content with my walk. I'm content with my morality. I'm content with my marriage. I'm content with my kids. And this is safe. You're preaching on tears and trials. If I step out of this safe zone, I'm opening myself up to tears and trials, and I don't want to do that. So instead of having a walk with the Lord or a race, you have a standing still with the Lord. And that's not in there. The problem with this race, I think, is we kind of misunderstand this idea of running. Look here at 2 Timothy 4, starting in verse 6. Paul speaking, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There's that theme again. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Verse 7, Your walk with the Lord is a fight. It's a race, and you've got to keep the faith. Now, a couple points on this. This is not a race as in a competition race. No. See, a lot of times when you think of a race, it's a competition. I ran cross-country in high school, and I still like to run now. And I remember with cross-country in high school, it wasn't a race for me. Because those guys that were at the front that were going to win, I was not competition to them in any way whatsoever. I competed against a clock, a watch, a time that I wanted to beat. Those guys up front, it was not a race. Even now, I've done some 5Ks, and if I go do a 5K, every now and then I'll go up to the front just to see what it's like to be at the front, at the starting line. Then I realize very quickly I need to go to the back. I'm not competing against those guys. It's not a race. I'm racing against a time. See, if you start looking at the Christian walk as a race, as competition, you're completely misunderstanding. If anything, I'm trying to help you run faster and run better in the Lord. You're trying to help me. We're not competing against each other. We're trying to make each other as healthy as we can be in the Lord. But this idea here, if I finish the race, oh my goodness, I see so many Christians start out. They start out strong. They start out on fire. And as they're going this Christian walk and race, they quit. They quit. Parable of the sower and the seed describes it as they get choked out by life. And next thing you know, as you're talking to them, you want to say, where's this man of God that existed five years ago? Where's this woman of God that used to serve and do this years or months ago? You quit running. You quit the race. Is it tough to finish a race? You bet it is. We've already talked about there's tears, there's trials, etc. It is difficult. But part of being a believer is this idea of, Lord, I finish strong for you. I finish strong for you. And not even finish strong for you, I run with joy. Joy. Paul used the word joy back, back in Acts 20. Second question we're asking, our first question is, are you holding anything back? Our second question is, how is your joy right now? Dawn asked me that a couple weeks ago. I didn't know how to answer. We were talking about stuff out here at church and and ministry and life. 
And she says, do you have joy? I didn't know that. I mean, I, well, I kind of did that. I mean, I love everybody. I, lo- I love what I do. I love seeing people get saved and go deeper. Do you have joy? And it's like, wow, there's, there's a whole other level. There's a whole other level. I love my kids. Do you have joy in your kids? Well, I love my spouse. Do you have joy in your spouse? I love the Lord. Do you have joy in the Lord? Paul says this is a joy, a joy for you. Go one step further. Jesus even took it that way. In Hebrews 12, when it's talking about Jesus, it says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So as Jesus was going to the cross, there's still a joy in what it would do. Ask yourself the first question. Are you holding anything back? Ask ourselves the second question now. Do you have joy in the Lord? That's something we really got to ask. Because if we don't have joy in the Lord, what's wrong? Why is this race not a race of joy? Why are the tears and trials not a time of joy? Well, that sounds kind of silly, James. Of course, tears and trials aren't joy. Joy is independent of the circumstances you have in life. Your joy is based on Christ and Christ alone and your salvation in Him. Your joy is not based on circumstances. Your happiness is based on circumstances. Joy is based on Jesus alone. We have to stop and ask, where's our joy? Paul said, I'm running this race, I have joy. Then he says at the end in Timothy, because Timothy is probably the last book he wrote, I finished the race. I love that verse. I tell you, when I'm doing a funeral, if that person was a strong believer, that's one of my favorite verses to share at a funeral. They fought the good fight, they finished the race, they kept the faith. They didn't give up, they didn't quit through the tears and the trials. They hung through it because they realized the greater good that comes out of that. The greater good. Continuing on now. Paul then brings these verses, verse 26. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I tell you, sometimes I wish verses 26 and 27 wasn't in there. Those are tough verses. Those verses are saying two things. Number one, verse 26, Paul is saying, I am innocent of the blood of all men. Any person that came into Paul's life, if Paul felt led to share Christ with them, he was obedient to do that. That's a big statement. Verse 27 He declared the whole counsel of God. Now that one seems a little easier, doesn't it? Do you realize how difficult it is to declare the whole counsel of God? The whole counsel of God is God loves you. But God also hates your sin. The whole counsel of God is, I want you to be the best believer you can be in the Lord, but I also have a responsibility to call you out when you're not. See, I wish I could pick and choose. See, a lot of times, whole counsel of God, I see people that preach just heaven but they don't preach hell. That's not the whole counsel of God. I've seen people flip it the other way. They sure preach hell a lot, but they don't preach preach grace. I've seen people preach love. God just loves you. Right, but there's also a penalty and punishment for sin. It's the whole counsel of God. And a lot of times we have friends or family members and we really feel like we're helping them. Are you helping them by giving them the whole counsel of God? Because sometimes the most loving thing you can do to somebody is say, I'm concerned about you. This isn't right. This isn't working. Sometimes as believers, we just say, I'll I'll pray for you. Well, maybe I need to declare the whole counsel of God. Verse 26, I testify to you to say that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. What keeps us from declaring the whole counsel of God? What keeps us from preaching Jesus every time? I think it's really just a fear. I don't want to lose friendships. I don't want to lose relationships. I don't want this to be awkward. I need to live with this person. I need to work with this person, etc. It's easier to just not do it. So then you're afraid of man more than you're afraid of God. And we've got to be careful about that. Verse 26, I testified to you this day I'm innocent in the blood of all men. That's a tough one. 
I distinctly remember when my wife and I were living in McClure, we ran into a couple guys, went over and started talking to them, and really felt like the Lord wanted to go deeper with this, you know, talk, really just proclaim the gospel to them. And I chickened out, I remember that. I remember I got back to my apartment there in McClure, and I just thought, you feel awful, you feel sick to your stomach. And I remember just saying, Lord, please, bring them back, just, just one more opportunity. Once you know it, a couple weeks later, I got a chance to run into them, and like, oh, Lord, thank you, thank you. Here's the deal, though. Let's say you dropped the ball. Let's say you knew the Lord said share, and you didn't. See, we throw that burden on ourselves. You're not important enough to send somebody to hell. You know that? You're not. This is what I've come to the conclusion. If I drop the ball, and I don't fully proclaim the gospel properly, and that person is not my responsibility, God would have sent somebody else in the spirit to go talk to him. I firmly believe that. So now you may be sitting here saying, oh, good, I don't have to worry about it anymore. James just said, God will send somebody else. So basically, it's like Isaiah, but changed. Here I am, Lord, send somebody else. See, I don't have to, I don't have to do it. But you're missing out. And some of you are saying, well, I don't care if I'm missing out. No, you do care if you're missing out. We are here to spread the gospel of Christ. And to be quite honest, if I run into somebody who is so easily saying, oh, send somebody else, I have to stop and say, why hasn't your heart been so touched by Christ that you want to share what he did for you? The first step in sharing the gospel is knowing the gospel personally and knowing that, which takes us to our third question. First question, are you holding anything back? Second question, do you have joy in the Lord, joy in service? Third question, and this is an awkward one, when's the last time you told somebody about Christ? When's the last time you shared your faith? I mean, if this is the most important thing to us, and this idea of the gospel, this is what got you up on a Sunday morning to come out here, why would we not be telling more people about it? Once again, we're afraid of the reactions. We're afraid of what they're going to say. I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. And I keep saying to you lovingly and jokingly, we're not that important. We can't screw up someone's salvation. We may misquote the verse. We may misrepresent a bit, but the Holy Spirit will always come back and say, no, we've got, we got to refine that. We've got to re- readjust that. I've come to the conclusion lately where I say, Lord, every time I leave, I just want to be able to share you with somebody if you open up a door. I don't want to force it. I don't want to push it. But I just want to share you. And you know, I was in Walmart earlier this week, and I had my youngest with me, Tyrus, who's two. And we're walking through the pharmacy at Walmart, had to pick something up, and I saw this guy sitting on the bench all by himself. He was a much older man, and I, I don't know how else to describe it. I'm not trying to sound ultra-spiritual here. He just looks sad. You know what I mean? He just looked down. He just looked sad. And it just hurt, really hurt for him. I walked by and just said hello. He said hi. And I, and I left the pharmacy, and I really felt like the Lord was saying, you need to go back and talk to this guy. So, I, you know, you go through all the things. I got a two-year-old. This is not the time. He's sitting there at the pharmacy bench. He's obviously waiting on something. You don't know. So I walk back through pharmacy again, hoping to strike up a conversation. I look at him again. We don't make eye contact, so there's no conversation. So now i got to go back again. You know, now it's starting to seem stalkish, right? <laughs> so I'm just going to go look at what's right there in pharmacy, and it was Metamucil. So I just went and stood in front of Metamucil. You pick it up. You read the back. You're just kind of waiting for eye contact. And so I'm looking through the Metamucil, and um, I get eye contact, and I, and I said, how are you today? He said, oh, okay. And he was at the bench. So I just went down and sat beside him at the bench. And we just talked about kids. We talked about life. You know what I mean? His name is Robert. You can keep him in prayer. And it's just like, Lord, I just want to be available. And sometimes you have these moments where the heavens open, you hit your knees, and tears are coming down. And in the name of Jesus, you're saved. Amen. I have noticed for me, most of what I do is just 
faithfully planting seeds. I don't know how many times I ask, is there anything I can pray for you about? Just planting seeds, being available. Lord, if you've got something here, I don't. I want to be innocent of the blood of all men. I'm willing, I'm available, I'm here. You ordain this, and I'll be there, Lord. That third question, when's the last time you had a chance to share the gospel? When's the last time you wanted to? I tell you, to describe what it's like in that moment of when you're talking to someone, for some of you, you know what I'm talking about. There's fear, there's excitement, there's anxiety, there's all these emotions. Your stomach just feels like it's completely full of butterflies because you're thinking, I'm doing something at this moment that could impact eternity. I just got done picking out orange juice. and I had to choose between pulp, pulp-free, calcium added. That was a big choice. That does not impact eternity. This impacts eternity. It's exciting. It's nervous. You want to leave. You want to stay. It's, I love it. I love that. I'm innocent of the blood of all men. It's quite the statement that Paul said there. Verse 28. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purposed with his own blood. Here he gets to his final thoughts and this is where the rubber really hits the road. Verse 28. Take heed to yourself. When Paul is talking about the ministry to this church, he says the first thing that matters, guys, is your ministry to you. You know who the most important person you minister to every day is? Yourself. Now, I know that sounds selfish. I have people that come up to me every now and then and say how they struggle to pray for themselves. And I say, I don't know how to respond to that. I pray for myself more than I pray for anybody else. Jesus prayed for himself in the Bible. I've come to this conclusion. For me to effectively minister to the church, I have to make sure that I am taken care of spiritually. I'm doing myself no good by saying, I'm just going to spend all this time ministering to you and I'm I'm not going to spend any time in the Word and prayer. No. Take heed to yourself. Verse 28. How are you doing personally in the Lord? Before you can minister to anybody, before you can be effective for the Lord, before you can have joy, before you can hold anything back, you've got to stop and say, Lord, it's you and me. This is this phrase we use all the time. Personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Personal. So his first statement to the church at Ephesus is, take heed to yourself. How are you doing with the Lord, just you? Once you get that taken care of, verse 28, now go shepherd the flock. That word shepherd is a really interesting word. It means a lot of different things. We think of a shepherd, obviously, with sheep. It means devoted, addicted, attentive, caring. I like that. That's the way I want to be to the church out here. Devoted, addicted, attentive, caring. I want to shepherd the flock. But before I can shepherd the flock, that's what I need to do. I need to take heed to myself. What good does it do for me to show up on a Sunday, prepare the message, present the message to you, and then go home and then do nothing spiritually myself or with my wife or my kids or anything like that? And I'll just come back next Wednesday, next Sunday, and I'll fake it for another hour, a couple hours. And then when you call me during the week, I'll be like, oh, praise Jesus. No, take heed to yourself. Am I living it? Okay, I'm living it. Okay, now I want to go shepherd the flock. The most important time I have with the Lord every day is me and the Lord alone in the Word and in prayer. Because that sets the tone for the rest of the day with family, with friends, with the church. I want to shepherd the flock. I want to be devoted. I want to be addicted. I want to be attentive. I want to be caring to it. But before I can do that, I need to take heed to myself. I knew this guy years ago. and Man, this guy was on fire for the Lord. I mean, seriously, just completely on fire for the Lord. He would have preached to anybody at any time and just had no fear of boldness and a fire to serve. And so he would come out. And he, he wanted to change the world. I mean, he's really one of those guys. It's not just Hamler. It's not just Henry County. It's not Northwest Ohio. It is the world. I'm taking the gospel to the world. 
problem? His life and his marriage was a mess. An absolute mess. So when he would come out all on fire, I would stop and say to him, how's it going at home? How's it going? And at first, acceptable, we talk about it. It reached a point then where the problem was them. They're hindering him. It's like, no. For you to be effective to the sheep, you first got to be effective with yourself and at home. Now, does that mean that if Dawn goes backwards spiritually, it's my fault? No, just like if I go backwards, it's not Dawn's fault. I'm one flesh with her. She's my wife. She's my sister in Christ. I want to encourage and help her, but ultimately it's her. Ultimately it's me. Same thing with my kids. Ultimately, I will raise them in Christ to hopefully accept Jesus at a young age. So I'm not saying that, okay, you got this family member and they're not right with the Lord. That's your fault. No, that's a personal choice. But did you take heed to yourself? Did you do what you can do? See, Paul is saying before you can minister to the flock, you got to take care of yourself spiritually. Take heed to yourself. Verse 29, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Verse 30, Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. I tell you, and usually when I talk about the church, I talk about the church in general and the body of Christ. I want to talk about the church here, here at Harvest for a second. I tell you, verse 29 and verse 30 is so true. The enemy is always trying to attack. Always trying to attack. And, you know, I've been coming out here for 21 years now. And I tell you, if I, we could stop and share all the ludicrous stories that have been said about this church over two plus decades that I know of. And you see these things being said here coming from the outside. But you know what? If Satan can't hit you from the outside, guess where he hits you? He hits you from the inside. And I tell you this. I, and I mention this a lot. A lot of times people come up to me after church and say, Hey, I saw this guy on TV. What do you think of? I'm always like, Don't ask me, please. Don't ask me. Or, Hey, I just saw this Christian book and I, everybody's reading it. It's amazing. What do you think of? And I'm like, Oh, don't ask me. Because generally, not always, generally, it's like, Oh, that's just not good. I saw an article recently and I shouldn't have clicked on it, but I did. The top ten richest pastors in America. And I, I expected some. Some of them were on there. It's like, no. 22,000 square foot house. Making millions a year. And I'm thinking, I got this guy's books. They're on my bookshelf right now. I've read. Now we can stop and say, well, you know what? If the Lord's blessed him, the Lord's blessed him. Yes. I don't know if the Lord blesses you with 25,000 square foot. That's a lot of blessing. Now... I'm not here to say, careful of the money, whatever. I think we know this. If you're in ministry, you're in, in ministry. And if, if the Lord has blessed you, then amen. The Bible makes this clear. And Timothy, command those who are rich in this world not to trust in uncertain riches. There's nothing wrong with that idea of money. It's the love of money that's rid of all evil. But the concern I have is this, is as that pastor, when you're living in 25,000 square foot and there's millions of dollars coming, it's like, oh, I think there may be a small breakdown in the system here. Because look what Paul says. Verse 32. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is, not, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Verse 33. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Paul says, you're not going to hear this from me. I'm not going to show up at Ephesus and say, let's do a special offering. I've been in churches. I've heard pastors say nothing less than a 20. I've seen pastors pass the plate, count the plate, pass the plate again. 
these things are why the world looks at Christianity and says, all you want is my money. Do you realize God doesn't want your money? He wants your heart. See, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. God is basically saying this, verse 34, Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. I just want to tell you this right now. There is a blessing in giving. There's no doubt about that in any way whatsoever. I know for Dawn and I, we could give testimony after testimony. There's a faithfulness in tithing and giving to the Lord. The Lord will always meet your needs and always take care of you. What a blessing that is. And I know and trust that the Lord will always meet our needs, not because we give to Him. It's not this tit for tat. Hey, Lord, look at that. I threw an extra 50 in my tithe this week. You owe me. No. Lord, I'm so blessed. I'm so overwhelmed by what you're doing. The most I can do, I want to do this. Take, Lord. Take. Use that. And the Lord will meet your needs. I trust Him on that. He says, test me on this. But verse 33, I've coveted no one's silver, gold, or apparel. Man. It's not about what I get. It's about what I can give. Because look at verse 35. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Our first question, are you holding anything back? Our second question is, do you have joy? Our third question is, when's the last time you shared the gospel? Our last question, do you really agree with verse 35? It's more blessed to give than to receive. If you look at the context of verse 35, it's not the context of money. There's a truth that it's more blessed to give financially. You're blessed. But the context of this whole chapter is giving of everything you own. Why don't we do it? Because if you give, there's this assumption that you get back. See, in Christianity, actually the teaching is you give hoping for nothing back. Jesus set the tone for that. Because I will give of my life expecting nothing in return. See, a lot of times what we do is, I did this for you, so I expect something back. Can we reach the mindset of it's not about what I get, it's about what I give. I will show love to unlovable. I will show grace to the ungraced. I will show mercy to those. I will show forgiveness. I will give expecting nothing in return, because that's the example that Jesus set. That is tough to do. Verse 36, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him into the ship. Last passage we're going to go to. You can go to 1 Peter 5, please. 1 Peter 5. I want to finish here with 1 Peter 5 because I, I find this fascinating. We have Paul's message. Now we're going to go read what Peter said. And Peter's message and Paul's message are basically one and the same. It's the same Holy Spirit leading through Paul. It's the same Holy Spirit leading through Peter. And it's a nice little summary of everything we just went over. 1 Peter 5. We're just going to read through this real quick, make a couple quick points, and we're done. Verse 1 of 1 Peter 5. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, and also partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Just like Paul, Peter is writing this to the leadership of the church, which we are all part of the church, so we can all learn from this. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. That's all we talked about. Verse 2, serve. Paul's first way to describe himself, serving. Peter's saying the same thing. Serve. Verse 2, shepherd. Paul said the same thing, shepherd. Devoted, addicted, attentive, caring for the body of Christ. 
Why? Not for dishonest gain. You're not in it for what you get out of it. You're in it for what you can give to somebody else. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Verse 3, nor is being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Examples. Paul said, you know what manner of life I lived. Peter's saying, be an example. Be an example as you point people towards Christ. Verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with, here's our word, humility. Humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Paul described a humble servant. Peter saying the same thing, a humbleness. It's not about me. It's about the other person. Verse 7, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he devour. Paul said there are going to be wolves that try to come in. Peter says, verse 8, there's going to be lions that try to come in. Everything Paul said, Peter said. Same Holy Spirit, same idea. Service, humbleness, sufferings, tears, trials. This idea of getting out there and being an example, being that humble person, watching out for the enemy. That's what we're supposed to be doing. This is how the church is supposed to work. Paul said it. Peter said it. Most importantly, the Holy Spirit said it. And that's what we need to be responsible to. Marv, you'll come forward for the final song. What I want to do here to close is I want us to pray these four questions. Are you holding anything back? Do you have joy? Be it joy in service, joy in life. When's the last time you shared the gospel? 